morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Donna Koik and I am a member of this congregation. Uh, I would like to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, economic situation, or any other variables. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I don't think there are any announcements this morning. So, without further ado, as we begin our worship together, Let's take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise as you are able and greet your neighbors. Oh, you time yourself. That's good. I always take a watch off. Looks like everyone is having a good time seeing one another this morning. Dear friends, we'll wait till you're seated. <laughs> that was a very lively greeting, welcome. Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting. The words are printed in the order of worship. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise and body your spirit for our opening hymn, number six in the gray hymnal.
If you would, please remain standing and join me in reciting the church's affirmation printed in the bulletin. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Our doxology. Please have a seat. I have your story this morning. As I like to do, I'm going to let you choose your own adventure. I've got uh, one metaphor I've been working on for a while. It's not very good, so um, I won't tell you which one it is. So you can hear a story about uh, a, a group of Unitarian Universalists who go to a buffet. Um, I've got that story I've been working on for a while on my jogs in the morning. Or I'll tell you a story about when I was a hospital chaplain uh, about a, a time that I encountered what I can only describe as a miracle or a mystery. So your choice, Unitarian Universalists at a buffet. Who wants to see that one? Okay, nice, all right. And uh, a hospital miracle. I don't know. Yeah, I have to do both, all right. Uh, maybe I'll try to do both. If one goes bad, I'll just switch and do the other one. So uh, one of the things, I don't know if you know this or not, that Unitarian Universalists are sometimes accused of, it comes from the title of my sermon this morning, is that we're all means and no ends. Does anybody have maybe an idea? Just nod your head if you think maybe you know what someone is saying about that. No, one person is nodding their head. Okay, this story's going to land like a ton of bricks. So, the argument goes, Unitarian Universalists offer a whole lot of means, right? The door is open, theoretically, sometimes not always best in practice, but the door, nevertheless, is open, theoretically, to a lot of worldviews and perspectives. Are you following me? Right, that's, that's on the marquee, as we might say. But in practice, whenever it really gets down to it in a church, and sometimes somebody wants to do something that might not be okay with some people, we run into some issues. So for instance, if this morning I were to invite you to an altar call, how many of you would come forward? Two people raise their hand, maybe three, four maybe. You get the point. I'm offering an end to someone's means, whatever that mean is, closeness, spiritual intimacy. Or what if in this sermon this morning I started speaking in tongues? Would you all be okay with that? I heard a no already behind me. A couple of okays. You get the point. So anyways, with that in mind, let's journey to Ponderosa Steakhouse. Have you all ever eaten at Ponderosa? It's disgusting. Anyways, 
We're all at Ponderosa. We're all wearing polo shirts that we got and khaki pants. So just so you know what we all look like. And we've gone to Ponderosa. Well, this is how Unitarian the Universalists eat at Ponderosa. We all walk in and we brought our own silverware, the means to eat. Donna brought a spork. That's what Donna eats with, sporks. She doesn't use forks. She doesn't use knives. She doesn't use spoons. She uses sporks, but the fancy kind with a serrated edge, so you can cut hot dogs or whatever you need to cut with. And then Karen Minarski brought chopsticks, because she loves eating with chopsticks. And I brought a really nice steak knife that I got from Amazon.com that I paid way too much for that I'm embarrassed to admit that I never use, but I got it. I always wanted it. And anyways, all the Unitarian Universalists, they, they belly up to the buffet. And have you all ever eaten at a buffet before? On my 22nd birthday, my friends took me to um, a casino and <laughs> took me out to eat at a buffet, because that's what you do, I guess, when someone turns 22. And I went to the buffet, and it was just a sea of food. Have you guys been to a buffet? Like, there's a person cutting prime rib and all this sort of stuff. But what do you, if you're like me, what do you do when you go to a buffet? You eat primarily with your eyes, right? Like, you go up and you get your favorite things. I love cottage cheese. I don't know if any of you know this. I love cottage cheese. And why buffets always have cottage cheese next to pickles, my second favorite food. I always go for the cottage cheese and the pickles and maybe one piece of fried chicken. And then I bring it back, and then what happens? I'm full. But see, when Unitarian Universalists go, is everybody gets their favorite food. And so Karen gets beets and corned beef, and Donna gets... Uh, a cranberry hash and a muffin, and I get cottage cheese and pickles and a piece of fried chicken. But then we say, we accept all of one another's food here, but you can't eat it. But I will let you hold my silverware. <laughs> so what if I just ended the story there? I haven't really ended it in my mind. So now I'm going to transition to the second story. The one time I think I saw a miracle in the hospital was this. I really don't have an ending to that analogy. So there was this woman, I, never, I was the chaplain in the mixed medical unit, the sickest of the sick people. And uh, my friend was going away. Uh, he, he, and his he and his wife had just adopted a daughter, and so they were going to pick up their daughter. And he said, Brian, would you do me a favor and cover my floor? One floor down on the seventh floor at St. Louis University Hospital, which was the transplant floor. So people who come there for liver transplants and kidney transplants and other major organs. And there was a woman who had had a successful kidney, or a liver transplant, excuse me. And it was going really, really well, and I got to know her, and I got to know her daughter, and I got to know her husband. And we released her from the hospital, and it was this wonderful, special occasion. And she left, and it was this wonderful moment. I went home that night, and it felt this wonderful success. And then I came back the next morning, and who was admitted through the emergency room overnight? That was the woman who had just been released after a successful liver transplant. And so I went up to the floor that I was now covering for my friend, and the doctors told me, they said, it looks like it's a full-on rejection. White blood cell counts are spiking. We really fear that this is going to end very bad. And so they said to me as chaplain, they said, do us a favor, call the daughter back in from college. She had already flown back halfway across the country to college. Call the dad and call anybody else that you need to get here. 
And so I did that, and that's what the chaplains did at that time, and so I gathered everybody back at the hospital, and the woman was intubated and couldn't talk, and it was this very heavy, very sad circumstance. And so the family comes in, and we're preparing everyone for the worst, and then I get a phone call from the woman's sister, and this is what she said. Imagine a Unitarian Universalist hearing the story. She says, I was praying for my sister, who you all tell me you think is going to die. I don't think I'm going to be able to get there. I don't think I'm physically able. But I took a walk behind my house this morning, and I looked down into a pond, and I found a rock, and on the rock was the face of Mary. And Mary told me, my sister is going to live. I hung up the phone, and what do you think I thought to myself? This is all means and no ends. This isn't going to end well for this person. I went home the next day expecting the next morning we would gather the family, we would administer last rites, we would pray, we would withdraw care, and she would be no more. Little did I know, I showed up the next day, and the woman is sitting straight upright in her hospital room as plain as day. All the color has returned to her skin, and she looks fit as a fiddle. I couldn't believe it. The doctors couldn't believe it. Doctors, whenever things happen that are, quote, miracles, doctors just say, we got lucky. Like, they won't ever say it. It's a miracle. They just say, we got lucky. And I say, might be a miracle. I'm the chaplain. I've got to say these things. They're like, I don't know. I think we got lucky. And as the days progressed, she continued to gather her strength and get stronger and get stronger and get stronger. And so finally, the day came that we were going to release her from the hospital. And the family said, we really want the chaplain to be here early in the morning because he's worked with us so long. We got to know him. I liked them. They liked me. And it was this wonderful thing. And so the nurse said, if you want to, I'll let you wheel someone, you know, to the, to the door as they do in a hospital when you get released. They always got to wheel you to the door. And, and I said, that'd be a privilege for me to get to wheel this patient to the door. And so gather the family. It was this emotional roller coaster. And I was in tears, she was in tears, the daughter was in tears, everybody was tearful. And I've been down to her to bid her farewell and to just say, I'm going to keep praying for you. I can't believe I'm talking to you. I can't believe you're still alive. I can't believe the story that your sister told me, this Mother Mary rock. It's like Jesus toast. It's just hard for me to believe. And she said, it's hard for me to believe too. And I said, I got to ask, what are you looking forward to? And she said, Brian, I got to tell you, I'm really excited I don't have to see you anymore. (laughs) And she went home. Anyways, that's my story for this morning. If you can find a moral, you're welcome to any moral in either of those stories. With that, let's sing our children's song. The mission and ministry of our congregation is made possible by the generous support of our friends and members. 
Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you very much for your support. I'd like to invite everyone to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. We'll start with a scan of our bodies, develop an awareness of our surroundings. So I invite you to put your feet on the ground. I invite you to close your eyes if it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed. You can leave them open if you'd like. Move your awareness to the top of your head. As you slowly move down, focus on your jaw. Any tension that may be there, let it out. And so too, down to your shoulders. Take a breath up and into them. Let them relax as you breathe out. And now take a breath full and into your stomach and slowly out. Spirit of life, comforter of sorrows. As people of faith, we know that we have been called to care for the sick and dying, to go where others won't, to cast out evil. But though we give up our lives for the sake of others, the wounds of a broken world are greater than we can bear. And so we cry out. We pray for those who have no homes and those whose homes are empty. We pray for all who care for elderly parents and for those who have no parents to care for. We pray for those who care for children and for children 
who have no one to care for them. We pray for all whose loneliness is more than they can bear and for all who ache in solitude. I'd like to invite all of you to bring into your mind the joys and sorrows. Let them rest in the sanctuary of our heart. Let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 123 in the Gray Book, Spirit of Life.
I shared this poem before, but it's too good not to share again, given the theme of this morning's sermon. It's a poem entitled, All My Friends Are Finding New Beliefs by the poet Christian Wyman. Christian uh, teaches at the Yale Center for Sacred Music, is a wonderful poet uh, and just a nice, charming guy. The poet writes, All my friends are finding new beliefs. This one converts to Catholicism, this one to trees. In a highly literary and hitherto religiously indifferent Jew, God womps on like a genetic generator. Paleo, keto, zone, South Beach, bourbon. Exercise regimes so extreme she merges with the machine. One man marries a woman 20 years younger and twice, and one bunch uses the word verdant. Another's brick-fisted belligerence gentles into dementia, and one, after a decade of financial feints and teases like a sandpiper at the edge of the sea, decides to die. Priesthoods and beasthoods, sombers and glees, high-styled renunciations and avocations of dirt, sobrieties, satieties, pilgrimages to the very bowels of being. All my friends are finding new beliefs, and I am finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the new loves and the old gods and the old loves, and the days have daggers and the mirror's motives, and the planets turning faster and faster in the blackness in my nights, and my doubts, and my friends, my beautiful, credible friends. Therein ends our reading.
tend to think that there's nothing more basic to human nature than our search for meaning. That's what I think ultimately drives us, our search for meaning. The answer to where one finds meaning differs from person to person, of course. So researchers at Pew just a few weeks ago, they conducted some research and published it that broke down Americans' answers to the question of where you find meaning in life in very fascinating ways. For instance, if you make more than $75,000 a year, you are more likely to mention travel and financial stability as being meaningful far more than people who make less. Atheists put way more stock than Christians in finances and hobbies and travel. Political conservatives mention religion as being most meaningful, while liberals name creative activities and political causes as being most meaningful. Now, most people, the vast majority of people, more than 70% across all age groups polled say family is the most meaningful thing. In fact, as we grow older, this number gets higher. By the time Americans turn 50 years old, more than 93% of us have shifted our life's meaning from work and politics to almost exclusively family and or religion. So regardless of age, what happens whenever you look at this data is it shows us that regardless of age, most people find an immense amount of meaning in being physically active and also being outside in nature. To me, they go hand in hand, but Pew separates them. So, I could sort of end the sermon there. I could just tell you to get outside, call someone on the phone who you know and you love, and practice religion, right? Just do it. I could end the sermon right there, but we all know that it's not that easy. If it was that easy, we would never have to conduct another poll. We all know, I know, that polls do very little to change people's minds. Have any of you ever changed your mind instantly after reading a poll? No one's shaking their head yes. For instance, let me give you an example of this. For instance, everyone knows too much alcohol is bad. Do you all know that? Yes, you all know that. It's an objective fact. But Wisconsinites don't care. We don't care so much that every year people in the state of Wisconsin drink 100% more than everyone else in the other 49 states. This is a fact, also an objective fact. I'm not making this up. 100%. That means for every drink drunk from the Redwood Forest to the New York Island, Wisconsinites have two. If you'd like to see this in action, I have an invitation for you. Take a pilgrimage to the great land of Green Bay. And there's this place there called Lambeau Field, and it is, in my estimation, the most holy site in our entire state. 
If you don't think that it's a holy site or that people who flock there aren't religious in nature, again, observe how everyone there is dressed alike, eating alike, singing alike, hating alike, loving alike, standing and sitting at the exact same time. So this morning what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about pilgrimage. Specifically, I'm going to talk about religious pilgrimage, and I'm also going to talk about family. It's Father's Day after all, and as many of you know, I am the father of a preteen girl. And some of the challenges in life have to do with being a parent or a husband. What I mean is more generally, some of the challenges in life have to do with sharing with others people who have cares and gripes and concerns that are as important as mine. That's what it means to have a family, right? To accept that other people's cares and gripes matter as much as yours. In fact, if you were to open the calendar on my phone, you would see that there are two things that dominate my days, family and religion. Almost every day of my life is split between the needs of my family and the needs of church. And I'm sure your calendar tells a unique story about you. For me, one of the hallmarks of fatherhood has been the subtle indignities. Anybody know what I'm going to mean by that? I'll explain. For example, the other day I was waiting in line in a very crowded store with my daughter. And my daughter turned to me and said in her characteristic very loud voice, quote, Dad, your breath smells really bad. You should have brushed your teeth. For the record, I had brushed my teeth, and my breath was not that bad. But I tried to play it off cool, as cool as you can look as someone who's just been outed for stank breath, but I tried to play it as cool as I could, even though my daughter outed me for bad breath in front of like 10,000 people. I have to admit, though, that part of me was sort of proud that she gave me the advice I have been giving to her since she was old enough to brush her teeth, like something has stuck in. But the other part of me wanted to run away and scream in embarrassment. So what I've been told is that this stage of the game, as someone in their late 30s, in your late 30s, this is the argument that has been presented to me by some of my more elder friends. It goes like this. At this stage of the game, in your late 30s and 40s, you're a working stiff, your savings are meager at best, you're dog-tired at the end of a day's work whenever you get home, you're stressed trying to make ends meet, you're bad at brushing your teeth, your breath stinks, and you've got another decade or two before the tides turn if everything goes according to plan, which seldom happens, so you should hope for the best and start planning for the worst. That's what my friends have told me I have to look forward to these next couple of decades. People are nodding, which is not reassuring. I was hoping people would be like, no, it gets better. Everybody's like, yep, everybody was doing that. Okay. So don't get me wrong. I know many people struggle more than I do, but I think that comparing struggles is what jerks do, don't they? Like you tell someone, man, I've had a really bad day, and they go, let me tell you about my bad day. Also, Unitarian Universalism, we're anti-jerk. We could put that on the marquee. UUism, anti-jerk. So anyways, as I grow older alongside my daughter, I've noticed that some of her struggles, in a way, are a lot like mine generally. 
I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. So in a recent New Yorker profile of the rock band The National, they're supposed to be like the most dad rock band on planet Earth, whatever that's supposed to mean. But in any case, in a recent profile of them in The New Yorker of The National, the musician Phoebe Bridgers was quoted as observing this, quote, middle-aged men and teenaged girls share a need to find themselves despite being kind of self-conscious about it, end quote. Any women think that middle-aged men need to find themselves? Yeah, okay, all right. So we agree with the premise. So an insight into what Bridgers is getting at can be found in a recent analysis showing how droves of dads have an affinity for shows created by women. Shows like Lena Dunham's Girls, Tina Fey's 30 Rock, Bridget Everett's Somebody Somewhere. In fact, the New York Times just this morning published an expose on this very topic. I had no idea they were going to publish it, but it's there. You could read about it. Now, I'll tell you my theory why this is happening or might be happening, but I'm going to give you two other people's theories first so you have some theories to argue with in your head. So the first one comes from the popular professor and the writer, Matt Dinan, who says, quote, you have to p pardon this guy. He's a philosophy professor. I'm going to try to break it down. He's got lots of jargon, but this is what he says. Quote, dads are drawn to cultural productions, to art, that expresses and analyzes loneliness through beauty. We like to explore loneliness through beauty. As dads, we are permanently trying to close the gap we feel between our kids and ourselves. We're trying to create intimacy. The loneliness of fatherhood comes not only from this need to secure affection, but from the concurrent awareness of the brevity of childhood or morality. We notice that this time that we have with a child is very short, and so we feel urgent. Dads start from an emotional distance, and as we make our way in to develop the experience, changes us and ends up leaving us different. Now again, you need to pardon all this philosophical jargon, but I'll tell you what I think he's getting at. This, the changing nature of parenting, especially for American fathers. The old tropes about manhood and masculinity are dying right in front of our eyes. As I said, there's an essay about this in the Times this morning. Moreover, in the year 2023 and even a few years before, being a dad is no longer necessarily limited to men. And as we see in modern films and TV shows, dads are no longer the absent tough guys who punch and kill, nor are they the domestic idiot who can't change a diaper. Today's dads in movies and books and film, they taxi the kids to practice. They change a lot of diapers. They cook, they clean, they get therapy. They even know what their Enneagram type is. Dads today do emotional caretaking, at least that's the expectation. And also it's the expectation that they receive emotional caregiving just like everyone else. So I think the best part of Dinan's essay captures how when you love someone, what you're doing is you are closing the gap of human loneliness by replacing it with intimacy and vulnerability. 
He says this mainly happens for parents when they realize how short childhood is and how short life is. And I'm going to say more about that in a bit. But I'm going to give you a second example. And this one comes from Heather Harvaleski's marvelous memoir on parenting and marriage she entitled Foreverland. And so she stumbles on this awareness after entering motherhood through the side door of step-parenting. And so what she says is that when her stepson first entered her life, she made a conscious decision to treat him just like a playmate. What she did is she refused to discipline and nurture him, even though she could tell that this is exactly what he needed and this is exactly what he wanted. So here's Harvaleski in her own words, quote, it can also be hard to resist holding the people you love at arm's length. Sometimes you fear the possibility of love itself. The possibility of growing into something more expansive and generous than you are now. Growing into a shape that might look ugly from the outside, but feels beautiful on the inside. End quote. Here's what I think she's saying. One of the strange things about being a parent or a lover is seeing how loneliness can separate people at a moment's notice. In the hospital, after my daughter was born, I went to the nursery, you know, the one behind the plate glass, and the kids are all laying there in their own little private spaceship. And I was thinking how lonely it is to come into the world. After all, when we're born, no one knows us. We don't even know ourselves the day we're born. We don't know ourselves or others until someone lifts us up into their arms and cares for us long enough that we find the courage to strike out on our own. But the thing about intimacy is that it's always fragile. You can get into a fight at the dinner table and suddenly a gap of loneliness opens up across from two people. And sometimes that gap of loneliness takes days and months to repair. By my lights, making a family is a result of the effort we exert to close the gaps that separate us from one another. Through trial and error and grace and forgiveness, we constantly fight to stop the spread of loneliness. Here's another lesson I've learned from making a family. Last week, my wife and I drove down to Rosholt to pick up our daughter from a week of camp. And so before she knew that me or my wife were there, I saw her way off at the distance, just reveling in the magic of friendship and joy that comes from a week together with friends. And so it dawned on me moment, in that moment, what I realized was that my child, our children, are a beautiful completion without us. That there exist other people in this world who will love them, who will love us, who can make us feel whole. Why else do moms and dads and grands and fosters get all misty-eyed when they drop kids off at school or college or a date for the first time? Why else would you get a catch in your throat when later in the day your kid comes up to see if they hurt your feelings when they told you that your breath stinks? What I'm getting at is the magic of family that gives life its meaning. The constant act of humbling oneself to close the gap between ourselves and our beloveds. 
the willingness to sacrifice a bit of dignity to convey love and make us close. And this brings me to our other topics, religion and pilgrimage. So I'll be personal and revealing in this part as well. So my pilgrimage into Unitarian Universalism started almost 20 years ago. I left conservative Christianity, the religion of my upbringing, for the freewheeling agnosticism so common in classrooms and pubs frequented by people in their teens and 20s. Maybe you remember this period of your life. Maybe you're still in it, I don't know. So by the time I had applied to seminary, I was a card-carrying atheist. I don't know if you know that. You can get a card. You can't really get a card, but anyways. I was a card-carrying atheist, a secular humanist to be exact. But I had a few mystical leanings, and so Unitarian Universalism felt like it would be a good fit, at least for a while, and now the rest is history. And so at the time, I was deeply influenced by a famous idea about religion that goes like this. Any fans of Richard Rorty in the room? No one, okay. Anyways, I was really influenced by Richard Rorty. The theory goes like this. Religion is a pragmatic tool that's only use is limiting human suffering. Religion is only a pragmatic tool that limits human suffering. And so, in this school of thought, religion is like a heartwarming movie or a book or music that nudges you to see for just a moment beyond the tiny horizon of your little world. It's like those moments in the movies when that couple gets back together and all of a sudden the song kicks in and you're trying not to ugly cry. That's what Rorty is getting at. Religion sort of cracks our heart open a little bit so the light can shine in. But that's it. I was so convinced of this worldview that I sent an essay on it in with my application to seminary and was shocked when a seminary affiliated with the United Church of Christ, the United Church of Christ, admitted me. Someone who said Jesus Christ was really just a convenient, moralizing narrative launched on the dying end of the Roman Empire that got a boost by one of its emperors. That's what I said. So at this point, I imagine some of you are wondering, Brian, what the heck happened? Where did that guy go? Here's how things changed, and I ended up believing in God again. So travel back in time with me. Back in seminary, every time I talked about the God I didn't believe in, judgmental, temperamental, racist, literally every single person around me said, Brian, I don't believe in that God either. In fact, I have no idea where you got that idea from. And so here's the moral. It is exceptionally easy to set up and burn down straw gods when you keep propping up figments of your own imagination. Truth be told, more than six years ago when I came to this pulpit, I was still trying to avoid using the word God in sermons. I knew I believed in something greater than myself, but I was embarrassed of it. And so I avoided reading from the Bible unless I could easily moralize the message with pop culture anecdotes. 
I did this because I didn't want people to think that I believed in the small judgmental God of televangelists, the small God in the clouds who rains down suffering on the good and bad alike. And you can read all those old sermons. The evidence is right there for you to read. I don't recommend you do that, but anyways, you can read them if you'd like. You'll see that I talked about creation from the perspective of scientific reductionism. I talked about human emotion as being nothing aside from neurons firing in the brain and signaling signals out to our body. I talked about love like a biologist talks about examining the droppings of elephants. It was all just science. More changes followed for me because the challenges of love and death that were presented to me and my family. So I started to change because my life. So as I changed, as my family lived and died, as the world changed, as this church and the people in it changed and lived and died, I found myself longing for a horizon in my theological worldview that was more expansive and open to grace and mystery. I found myself needing a lot of time in prayer, but these changes were very hard. I'd spent decorate, I had spent years decorating the religious walls of my mind with knowledge and facts. And those pictures still hang on the walls of my mind, but the thing that's happened is at this point in my life, the plaster that holds those pictures is cracked. It's cracked because the religion I long for needs what Rudolf Aldo calls mysterium tremendum, the feeling that comes gentle like a stream or crashing like a wave that can give us clarity to see the majesty of the very nature of life. I long for this because I've encountered tremendous mysteries so powerful, I've been stopped in my tracks. I long for a religion that humbles my thinking, that deflates my bloated sense of self-worth, my overfilled ego. I want a faith that asks me to be with the suffering and wait expectantly with no agenda other than being present. At this point in my life, I need something or someone who has the power to send me higher and plunge me deeper into the very heart of being, into the very heart of my being. What I discovered a few years ago was that I was spiritually parched. And so I slowly opened the door to what I call God, but not the small God I once enjoyed tearing down, not the straw gods I like to pretend were everyone else's. And so what I did is I started my search for God in the words of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears and discovered what Ralph Waldo Emerson gave us in the image of the oversoul, the thing into which all souls emerge and all souls return. I read a sermon by one of this church's former pastors who said that Jesus Christ is an invitation to a life of faith so full of love and grace that it always slips from our grasp every time we think we have it because it's always pulling us forward in search of new ways to interact. I read Norbert Chopik's sermons that say that our lives are gifts given by a divine mystery unto which all of us will return. 
Then I return to the scriptures, listening to prophets who said, if we call ourselves people of faith, then we have to walk humbly and we have to sow justice. I read where it said that in us, there exists this still small voice that if we listen, it can call us back to ourselves. I read stories about the prodigal son and how his father ran to him in all of his shameful dishonor and loved him back to wholeness. And how the truest expression of fairness doesn't count the hours, but pays everyone the same. Because everyone needs alike and everyone suffers alike. If you all don't know this, the word religion literally means to bind together. To be religious is to see the world and the people in it as members of a sacred family. Too many people live in a very narrow religious worldview, and I'd like to invite you to not do that. Some people who call themselves religious and non-religious have narrowed their thinking into something that more closely resembles a straitjacket. Do this, not that. Love him, not her. Believe this, not that. At this point in my life, I've lost all patience with that. I've lost patience with both liberal and conservative fundamentalism. People who have forgotten that at its core, religion is about awe, it's about humility, and it's about compassion. The whole point of religion is to help us rediscover our kinship with creation, to help us journey into what mystics call oneness what Buddhists call nirvana, what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one. And there is almost no greater experience of this for me than in the act of nurturing a child or a marriage or a friendship. To see someone become themselves, to move in the world freely and with bravery. To see someone feast on the altar of creation and discover in their own way that all of us have been stitched into the great chain of being. It is this oneness that calls to us and nudges us to try again, to transform our lives. You see, family and nature put us face to face with creation, and it's religion that helps us make sense of it. Amen. I invite you now to rise as you're willing and able to sing our closing hymn, number 407 in the Gray Book. We're going to sit at the welcome table.
May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. <laughs>